The following podcast contains explicit language. From Washington, D.C., this is Lexicon Valley, a podcast about language. I'm Bob Garfield with Mike Volo, and today, episode number 43, another installment of Linguophile, wherein we discuss a mystery word or phrase with lexicographer Ben Zimmer. Hey, Mikey. Hey, Bobby. How you doing? Splendid. Thank you. And yourself? I'm wonderful. I'm great. I want to get started right in today. Wait. Wait, 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 wait. No mindless banter? No, I don't think we have time for it. We got a lot to get to. And I'm a little under the weather. You know, Xander was sick, and then my wife got sick, and I'm sick. It's like... I'm over the weather. I'm doing great. <laughs> it's nice to hear. I guess that metaphor came about if you're below the clouds under the weather, then you can get rained on. If you're above the weather, as planes typically are when they fly, at, what, 30-some-odd thousand feet, then you're free and clear. Yeah, yeah, maybe that's it. Perhaps we could devote an episode to this very question. I think we already just did. That's it. <laughs> Nothing more to say. <laughs> All right, Mikey, what are we done here? <laughs> no, let's uh, let's bring out Ben. Hey, Ben, Bubba baby, how you doing? Hey, doing well. How are you? I'm good. I'm very good. You are recently back from the Philippines. Welcome back. Thank you. Yes. Uh, still a little jet lagged, but hanging in there. So I want to start off by reading a couple of letters about our linguophile episodes. The first one is about our previous episode, the Lanyap episode, and it's by Michael Watt. He says, I didn't know the word Lanyap, but I immediately recognized the concept, which they have here in Japan and call sabisu from the English word service. If there is a shop you regularly visit, such as a neighborhood green grocer, the operators will commonly throw in a little extra something when you pay. A restaurant might also send out an extra appetizer. So this custom apparently exists in Asia as well. Another listener wrote in to tell us that there's something similar in Korea using a word that also comes from the English word service. In fact, they may even just say service when they do it. So this is not exclusive to South America or the regions of the Carolinas that you mentioned, I suppose. So even in Latin America, there are other terms other than uh, lanyap. Somebody alerted me to the Mexican-Spanish term pilon, P-I-L-O-N, which comes from a Spanish word for mortar or sugar loaf. So pilon is the equivalent of lanyap. You know, I didn't mention this at the time, but in my own experience growing up in Philadelphia, I would see a merchant, and uh, let's just say I was purchasing um, soft pretzels. I'd give him a quarter for three soft pretzels, and I'd get the bag and say, well, that's it? Three pretzels? And he would throw in, at no extra cost, why don't you go fuck yourself? <laughs> <laughs> and you took that home with you and shared it with your parents? <laughs> I did. <laughs> I did. Just a little something extra to kind of uh, grease the skids for the next transaction. So uh, we also got a couple of letters, Ben, about the discombobulate episode. As I mentioned last time, you suggested that discombobulate might be the only word in the English language that has Bob in the middle. Frank Yellen wrote in and pointed out that there is a main entry in Wikipedia called ski bobbing. Ski bobbing is a sport that looks sort of like you attached a bicycle frame to a pair of skis. I don't know why you would do that, but people apparently do, and they've been doing it for decades, because I found ski bobbing with a hyphen in the OED, in the Oxford English Dictionary, 
with citations as far back as 1966, when it said, ski bobbing has come a long way since those first laughing days. So apparently it had been around for a while even then. I don't know if the hyphen would disqualify it, but now it appears that the hyphen has disappeared. And in the Wikipedia entry, it's just ski bobbing as one word. And then there's also a ski bobber is one who ski bobs. (laughs) You're finished here. Zimmer. <laughs> well, okay, uh, the technicality I would go after that would be that, you know, it's really just ski bob plus either the ing or the er ending. So it's not as pure as discombobulate, where bob is really in the middle of a single word. I would uh, try to wriggle out of it on those grounds. It's, it's so sad and so pathetic. The man <laughs> has obviously been humiliated, and he, he, you know, he won't concede the point. Ben, I'm, I'm afraid I'm going to need to see your resignation on my desk no later than Monday morning. <laughs> well, I think, Bob, that Ben will probably say the same thing about this second Bob in the Middle word, which Daniel Gottesman wrote in about. He notes that in Merriam-Webster, the word now obsolete, nabob s, which is a female nabob or the <laughs> wife of a nabob. Mm. Yeah, I think the same uh, argumentation applies here. Uh, The S is clearly a suffix, which does really sort of make the middleness a mere technicality. I actually have to throw one with Ben. I actually like nabob S better. I mean, ski bobbing, again, I mean, you could think of other kinds of bobbing, like apple bobbing. But at least with nabob S, that ESS ending, I mean, it actually reminds me of the episode that you did on Dude, where the female equivalent mm-hmm. of dude was either a dudette or a dudess. So nabob s has a, well, nabob has a s, certain ring to it. Yeah, nabob s predates both discombobulate and ski bobbing. There are citations in the OED as far back as the 1700s for that word. He hopes to see her eclipse all other nabob s's in wealth. Hey, I'm sorry. I, I, you know, I hate to belabor the obvious, but what's a nabob? I mean, all I remember is Spiro Agnew <laughs> saying... Nattering nabobs of negativism, which I believe was actually uh, coined by Bill Sapphire. William Sapphire, who yeah. was a yes. speechwriter at the White House at the time. But I was never really clear on what constitutes nabobity. I think the way that Bill Sapphire, through Spiro Agnew, was using it was to suggest people critical of the administration, maybe the media elite, those who were in the chattering classes, liberals perhaps, who were of the moneyed classes, but who were critical of the Republican Party. Yeah, by the way, I guess we should add, since some of our audience is a little less superannuated than I am, uh, that Spiro Agnew was the vice president of the United States under Nixon before having to resign in disgrace after pleading no low contendery to a, uh, corruption charges dating back to his governorship of Maryland. So he was forced to resign long before uh, his boss, Richard Nixon. In any case, Ben, today's word. Let's go at it. I imagine this, Bob, is like the family feud, you know, where you have to, like, <laughs> bang the buzzer. Yeah, I may as well not have a buzzer. In fact, I may as well go out for a, uh, a milkshake because so far I haven't even been in the contest. You know, I recognize that. I, I've thought about that. And, and I don't think it's fair for me to give another one that's sort of based on wordplay because clearly Mike is uh, something of a pro with these things. You know, last week's anagram of appealing lanyap, I thought, would take a little time. So to make it a fair fight so that both of you have a chance, I'm, I'm going to back off of the wordplay and uh, give you another kind of clue that I think is equally gettable for both of you. 
So the clue involves the great modern-day poet Eminem. Eminem, a few years ago, was uh, interviewed by Anderson Cooper on 60 Minutes. And so I'm going to quote you something that Eminem said. People say that the word blank doesn't rhyme with anything, and that kind of pisses me off because I can think of a lot of things that rhyme with blank. Orange. There you go. Bob's got it. <laughs> All right. Wow. Thank you for rigging it to uh, <laughs> to make even a special needs host feel like uh, he's a part of the action. I appreciate that, Ben. Well, orange is perhaps the most famous unrhymable word. I was actually thinking about the word and the fruit orange recently because I was thinking that it was maybe the only food item that is just named for its color. We'll get to that. Okay. But first, let's talk about Eminem's attempts at coming up with his own quasi-rhymes, let's say, for orange on that 60 Minutes interview. If you enunciate it and you make it, like, more than one syllable... Mm-hmm. Orange, you could say, like, I put my orange, four-inch door hinge in storage and ate porridge with George. <laughs> well, well, uh, bless his heart, I guess it just depends on what you mean by rhyme. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, of course. There are a bunch of words that do not have perfect rhymes. Orange is one of them. There's some other color terms. Purple and silver don't have perfect rhymes in English either. Other words like month or bulb or film that are one syllable that don't have any other rhymes. But orange is the one that people always try to find rhymes for. And in fact, I found from 1865 in the journal Notes and Queries, the eminent English philologist Walter William Skeet gave his own little rhyme that used orange, and he actually used door hinge in there, just like Eminem did. I gave my darling child a lemon that lately grew its fragrant stem on, and next, to give her pleasure more range, I offered her a juicy orange, and nuts, she cracked them in the door hinge. Marshall Mathers, a.k.a. Eminem, is a noted skeet scholar, and so I'm not sure it's (laughs) fair that he stole that. This reminds me, Ben, of a throwaway line from about 20 years ago on The Simpsons, where at Lisa's school there was a poster for juvenile literacy (laughs) that said uh, there was an owl on it, and it said, give a hoot, read a book. (laughs) (laughs) Where he should have been condemned by parents and educators alike as simple-minded TV mayhem... This new crusty devoted a small portion of every show to stamping out illiteracy in today's Anything for a Thrill Youth. Give a hoot, read a book. <laughs> That's a pretty terrible <laughs> rhyme. Um, but uh, looking into this a little further, this whole sort of grand tradition of finding rhymes with orange, there was a folklorist named Gershon Legman who collected body humor, and he actually collected a whole book of thousands of dirty limericks from like the mid-20th century. And a couple of them actually attempt to rhyme orange in a dirty limerick. This is from 1946. Peter, first Duke of Orange, was limited to a miserable four-inch, but technique in a keyhole developed his pee hole till at last it got caught in the door hinge. (laughs) Now, you're sure that wasn't Emily Dickinson? (laughs) So, Mike, you were saying before... What was your observation about the color name and the fruit name? Well, I was just thinking that it was really selfish of the fruit orange to take that color because then you deprive, say, pumpkin of being able to call itself an orange. 
it's not like banana took yellow, right? And then therefore like summer squash would be like, damn, you know, I was going to take that, but I guess now I'll be summer squash. Orange just grabbed it. It grabbed that word and it occurred to me that it was kind of selfish. Well, this is the key question right here. Which came first, the name of the color or the name of the fruit? Your sense is that the name of the color came first and then was applied to the fruit. That was my assumption, yeah. Bob, do you have any feelings on the matter? You know, I don't have any thoughts. I mean, it's it's kind of making my head swim to imagine that pumpkin could have gotten in there had it been just a little more assertive. (laughs) But uh, no, I I couldn't uh, speculate here. It would be irresponsible. I don't know if this is a clue as to which came first, but I do know that there are similar sounding words in other languages. For example, in Italian, the word for orange is arancia, which suggests that the word was first applied to the fruit, not the color. Well, your first guess is one that a lot of people would think of because there seems to be something kind of basic about orange as a color term, but it's only really been a basic color term in English since relatively recently. There's a famous work on color terms by Brent Berlin and Paul Kay from 1969 called Basic Color Terms, and they came up with kind of an evolutionary sequence of terms. They posited that this was actually universal, that all languages would obey this kind of evolution. You would start with words for white and black or light colors and dark colors. Mm -hmm. Then you get a word for red. Then you get words for green and yellow. Then you get a word for blue and then brown, and then orange comes very late in the game after you've established all these other color terms. That certainly fits with English. Actually, orange, to refer to the color, only dates to the early 16th century. Before that time, you know, if you wanted to refer to that color in, say, Old English, you would have to say something like yellow-red or red-yellow. And so people did do that. There's written documentation of people just combining other colors to refer to what we now call orange. Yeah, exactly. There's an old English term that is just basically yellow-red. But orange is a newcomer, and the fruit came first, and then people started calling this color orange because it was the color of the fruit. Wait, so then how did, perhaps you're going to get there, but how did the fruit come to be called orange? What does that word mean then, if not originally the color orange? Therein lies a tale. Orange is a very well-traveled word. You might have guessed from our last installment on Lanyap, I like words that go through many different languages. So, you know, Lanyap making its way from Quechua to Spanish to French to eventually English. You like words with a lot of stamps in their passports. Exactly, exactly. Because it tells you so much about what happens along the way. And orange is one of my favorite examples of this, of a word that's just been everywhere before it gets to English. It's an odd tale, and there are actually some very interesting wrinkles to the story that we'll get to where there's like an etymological coincidence that actually gives orange great geopolitical significance. But the story actually starts with the fruit being cultivated in China uh, about 2500 BC and then started its travels following trade routes through the South China Sea around the Malay Peninsula to southern India and... The word that we can find as the ultimate root for orange is mentioned in a Sanskrit medical book about 2,000 years ago. And that word is naranga. That was the word in Sanskrit for this fruit. 
it probably came from a Dravidian language. So the Dravidian languages were spoken in southern India, big languages like Tamil, Telugu, Malayalam. I really like saying that one, Malayalam. It's also a palindrome. Uh, in those languages, the word naru, like the first syllable of that word, means fragrant. So the best guess is that they got this fruit that was coming from China, and they said it was a, a fragrant fruit, and so it developed this term, naranga, which shows up in Sanskrit texts. Was it showing so, up in a medical text because it was presumed to have medicinal properties? It did, yeah. And that's because the fruit that travels west and gets to Europe is actually the bitter orange, also called the uh, Seville orange or the sour orange. It's like the kind of orange that might still be used for making marmalade, but it's not the sweet orange that we're more familiar with. Mm. So this bitter orange traveled west. It had this Sanskrit name, which was then picked up in Persian. Naranga became Narang. And then from Persian, it goes to Arabic, and the Arabic word is Naranj. Okay, so we've already gone through four or so languages, and we haven't even gotten to Europe yet. So by the time you have Muslim merchants in the Mediterranean, in the, say, the 6th, 7th, 8th century AD, this Arabic term Naranj is being introduced to various European languages. Remember, this is also around the time that a large part of Spain became under Muslim rule as well. Mm -hmm. And then that Naranj gets translated into the various, say, Romance languages as similar-sounding words. That's right, yeah. So Spanish in the late 14th century has naranja. There's an Italian word, narancia. Medieval Greek, like Byzantine Greek, they call it narancion. And in fact, by the time it gets to the European languages, that first N consonant is one that people aren't quite sure about. And in some languages, the first consonant just starts dropping off completely. So Italian gets arancio. Latin, sort of medieval Latin, late Latin, has a word called arantium. If you think about a noun and how it can have an indefinite article, a or an in English, or un or una, you know, similar things in Romance languages, if you put that at the beginning, sometimes it's unclear where you draw the boundary. Mm -hmm. So in English, that happens in the history of words like newt, N-E-W-T, started off as oot, and then anut became a newt. Or you could work the other way. So adder, A-D-D-E-R, like the snake, was originally natter, but then a natter became an adder. In uh, linguistics, they call it rebracketing. You're not sure where you're supposed to draw the line exactly. That might have been what happened with the loss of that initial N sound. This confusion over the article plus the word can lead to the consonant being added or the consonant being subtracted. Exactly. Right. Yeah. So in this case, it looks like the N was being subtracted. And this really picked up steam once that sweet orange started to get introduced. So they brought that back to Portugal in the early 16th century. They started exporting that to Spain and other European countries. And that became a prestige item as well, that sweet orange, because it was this luxury fruit. Wealthy people would start growing these oranges in their own greenhouses, their own conservatories that were called orangeries. Oh, like the Paris Museum. That's why they call it l'orangerie. There you go, l'orangerie, right, yeah. So you had, you had oranges spreading all over the place. Christopher Columbus is uh, bringing the seeds of the oranges and other citrus fruits to the Caribbean, and, you know, Pizarro is bringing it to South America. Who was the first explorer, then, to bring slices of oranges to youth soccer games? 
<laughs> Mike, Vasco de Shinpad, duh. So what's happening to the word orange during this time when uh, oranges are getting more popular? Well, it's spreading to all these different romance languages. We mentioned Portuguese and Spanish and French and Italian. There's one other romance language that doesn't get mentioned as much as those big ones, and that is Occitan, O-C-C-I-T-A-N. That was a romance language that was spoken in the southern part of France, and a major dialect of Occitan is Provençal, spoken in the Provence region of France. In fact, that area is going to play a very important role in the story. It's actually in Provence, the way that this word gets changed there, that really gives us our modern form of orange. Now, Ben, you don't ordinarily think of the south of France as being the epicenter of the global orange industry. Was it then? Um, Actually, the importance of that Provençal region to this story really has nothing to do with the production of the fruit. There is a town there, an old Roman city, that happens to have a name that's very similar to this name of the fruit. The Roman city was originally called Arasio, A-R-A-U-S-I-O. Before it was a Roman settlement, it was a Celtic settlement, and it was named after a Celtic water god named Arasio. This is the etymological coincidence that you were alluding to earlier. That's right. So you get the name Arasio as the name of this Roman city in the south of France. And in the Provençal language, Arasio eventually becomes something like Orenja, A-U-R-E-N-J-A, Orenja. So the name of the town is becoming very similar to the Provençal word for the fruit, oranja. Oranja, oranja, very close. And so they just kind of fold together at a certain point and become orange, originally spelled O-R-E-N-G-E. And so we get orange as the name of both the city and the fruit as the Provençal speakers use it. And it was just a coincidence that these two things happened to be similar and then ended up influencing each other in a way that turned out to be rather profound. It's a fascinating story because I bet, and maybe I'll do this, I bet if you were to literally go out in the street and ask the average person, you know, which came first, as you did in the beginning of this episode, which came first, the fruit as an orange or the color as an orange, you know, my guess would be that the vast majority of people would imagine that the word was first the color, like, like I sort of did. So now we've learned a couple of things, the etymology of the word orange, and we've learned that Mike's idea of data and statistics is to take his, <laughs> his own supposition and then simply extrapolate therefrom. So this has been very, very, very But wait, I'm going to go out in the street and ask people. It still won't be data, dude. But it'll be it'll more be data anecdotal. than you have right now. <laughs> That's true. The word orange can refer to either the color or the fruit, right? So which did it refer to first? The color. The color? The color, because we probably use the word orange to refer to color more than we do to refer to the fruit. <laughs> the color. Why do you think the color? I don't know. I just You asked me, like, what came first? And I think, well, I thought back, and I thought, what, when you said orange, did I think color? Did I, I, did I think fruit? I thought color. Uh, just when you said orange, I just visualized orange. I just went straight to the color. 
orange can refer to either the color or the fruit, right? Which should it refer to first? Fruit. Because you have this fruit and say, oh, and you see similar colors, say, oh, it's like orange. So it's, you call it orange, maybe. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> okay, so we owe all of this to the city in the south of France. But why does that end up being so important to the story? Well, a lot of it has to do with the political history of Europe. So what happens is in the early 16th century, the prince of this city, uh, Philibert of Orange, is awarded a good chunk of the Netherlands for his services to the Holy Roman Emperor Charles V. But he has no immediate heir, and so his title, the Prince of Orange, gets passed down to his German nephew, William of Nassau, Prince of Orange. And this is the William who founds the Dutch Republic and the House of Orange, the Royal House of the Netherlands, fights this long protracted uh, war against Spain, the Eighty Years' War. And so because of that etymological coincidence that the name of the fruit and the color associated with the fruit happen to be like the name of that town in the south of France, the fruit and the color become very important to the Protestants in the Netherlands, fighting against the Catholics. And it's the same in Ireland, right? Well, yeah. What happens there is about 100 years later, you have another member of the House of Orange, William III. He's the grandson of William I of Orange. He becomes King of England, uh, William and Mary. Well, what happens there? King James II was a Catholic, and his daughter Mary ended up marrying this Protestant, William III of Orange. But then James II had another heir, a son, who seemed to be carrying on a Catholic dynasty that got the Protestants uh, worried. And so they brought in William III, the Dutch guy and the husband and also first cousin of Mary, to be the new king of England in the glorious revolution of 1688. And so what happens when they parade William down the streets and greeting him as the new king? Well, they've got lots of orange banners. And in fact, they have the fruit, the orange fruit as well to greet him. So once again, the color and the fruit become this very politically important thing now to the Protestants of the British Isles in England and also Ireland. When uh, William is king, he encourages the Protestants to uh, settle in Ireland as well. And so the Protestants of Ireland become known as the Orange Men. Hmm. Knock, knock. Who's there? Orange. Orange who? Aren't you glad that this is finally over? <laughs> we made it. We got all the way through <laughs> the uh, nine or ten languages and uh, did the whole story. Well, thanks, Ben, for uh, yet another fascinating word. And I'm, I'm sorry, I, I know that Bob was quick on the buzzer this time. I got to up my game for the fourth installment. But uh, until Okay, that, well, it's, you're still leading two to one. Yeah. Well, thanks for lobbing me the softball. It's, <laughs> it's much appreciated. All right. No well, problem. until then, thanks so much, Ben. Thanks. It's always fun with you guys. Ben Zimmer is executive producer at The Visual Thesaurus, visualthesaurus.com, where he writes a column called Word Roots, and this week's column will, of course, be more about the word orange. So that was a pretty crazy, twisted tale of that word, huh, Bob? Yeah, it was pretty uh, pretty twisted. Uh, fascinating, though. Uh, who knew? You know what I'm saying, Mike? Who knew? All right, so if you want to get in touch with us and tell us about how much you like or dislike oranges, you can do so at lexiconvalley at slate.com. That's lexiconvalley at slate.com. 
Please follow us on Twitter at Lexicon Valley and subscribe to our feed in iTunes. You can search for Lexicon Valley in the iTunes store and give us a rating there. Of course, many thanks to Ben Zimmer, fantastic as always, and to Andy Bowers, the executive producer of Slate's podcasts. We done here? Yep, we're done. Hey, Mike, you know how I'm so amused by the Yiddish accent you use in your baby songs for Xander? <laughs> yeah. I got another knock-knock joke for you. Knock-knock. Who's there? Formaldehyde. Formaldehyde who? Formaldehyding places came the bad guys. <laughs> My aunt told me that joke. Yeah, did she have a Yiddish accent as well? Only while telling that joke. Oh, okay. <laughs> the rest of the time, she was Eleanor Roosevelt. Well, anyway, I thought it was cute. Later, Gator. Gator.